0: how is everybody doing and welcome back for another strength chat episode today i have got a very special guest for you today i am joined by the founder of barbell rehab and a doctor of physical therapy today i am joined by the one and only michael mash how are you doing good how are you steve i'm very well thank you very much uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to to jump on i know we had a little bit of a chat before we started uh, recording but how are you what's been happening in your world recently real
1: good, man. Uh, we're, we're just doing it over here. Uh, so barbell rehab, we're up here, we're scaling our live courses. We're working on more online courses to, uh, keep pushing the boundaries and pushing forward the rehab and strength communities. So yeah, man, we're over here doing it. So I'm excited for this year see where it goes. We got ooh, 15 courses booked already through April, uh, with our first overseas seminar in Italy. So super excited about that. Um, but yeah, happy to chat today. I'm excited to see where this conversation goes.
0: Yeah, so am I. And I, I saw you released a lot of dates um, uh, for the in-person and obviously the, the one in Italy as well. Um, so is that kind of, um, are you adding more dates to that or how has that been compared to sort of maybe the last two years with COVID and, and all that sort of stuff? Is it's good to get back into um, the in-person stuff as well as the online stuff that you've been doing?
1: Yeah, it's been, it's been a wild ride. Uh, we started out as a continuing education company. I taught my first one-day seminar in September of 2019, uh, where we covered squat, bench, deadlift, overhead press, how to coach them, how to modify them for pain, all in under seven hours. <laughs> so <laughs> really enjoyed doing that. We taught 10 of those between September 2019 and uh, into... February of 2020. And then obviously my goal of 2020 was, Hey, I want to do 20 one day courses in 2020, but that just didn't work out, uh, which is fine because part of being a business owner is you need to know how to pivot. So we took that one day course, transitioned it into an online course, the Barbell Rehab Workshop online course. Shut things down for about a year, uh, just with everything going on. And then in late 2020, I was like, all right, come 2021, I want to start doing some live courses again. Um, But the thing with the one-day course is we just didn't have enough time to really go in depth like I wanted to. So we turned that one-day live course into the two-day live Barbell Rehab Method Certification course, which we taught the first one in April of 2021. We did 20 of them last year between April and December. And now we are just looking to scale it this year as well. We got a team of me, two fully trained instructors, two more instructors in training. So we're looking to scale it uh, as much as we can within what we can do with the situation going on with the world.
0: Oh, cool! And I know um know. Yeah, I, I kind of pre-warned you in the email that there might be a few tangents in there when things when things uh, in the episode, where things pop into my head. But um, uh, delivering seminars and, and courses, especially as I've progressed as coach, is, is something that I'm, you know, uh, definitely interested in. Was it something that all that you always wanted to do, or did it something, or was it something that you kind of gravitated towards? you know, as you started, you know, barbell rehab and and coaching and, you know, the education side of things? Gotcha. It was a little bit of
1: both. So um, I don't tend to show this side of me on social media, but I'm a very private, uh, introverted type of person. But if I can talk about something I'm passionate about, man, it just that's where it's at. So I was always that introvert in high school. But anytime I had the opportunity to give a presentation on something that I liked, I really excelled at it and I was like, I really enjoy talking about things that I'm passionate about. So even into physical therapy school and even in undergrad, anytime that we would study for a test, I would want, I'd say, come on, guys, come on over, everybody come over. I would either rent a room out. Uh, like a classroom, and I would just I would teach the material to my peers as a way to study, because that helped me really digest the information. So I've always been an educator. My mom's a high school principal, uh, so it kind of runs in the family, for lack of a better way to say that. <laughs> and even right now, I'm not in clinical practice anymore, I uh, just because I'm working on fully growing Barbell Rehab as a continuing education company. But even when I was treating patients, my favorite part about it was the education stand, uh, the education point, really getting to see the light bulb go off in people's, in people's minds. Um, so as soon as I taught that first seminar in September, 2019, I was like, oh boy, this is it. This is what I want to do. So it was always kind of there in the background until I finally scaled it to where I, I,
0: I wanted it to be. Ah, oh, nice. I think that there was a couple of similarities there because, um, you know, one of the biggest things is especially with the clients that I work with, is that I don't want them to be uh i think maybe dependent is the right word on me uh, yeah that, you know i actually teach them how to do something so if they go away and they go to any other gym if i'm not there they know how to set up a, a barbell and squat and, and and all those sort of things and i think the the education side of things and especially with the content you put out there is really useful rather than saying no you've got to do this that they actually learn something off the back of it which i think is good for you know from the client's point of view but also the also the coaches um Obviously, I did uh, a bit of an introduction there and uh, asked a question mm-hmm. about um, developing the, um, uh, the seminars. Well, for anyone listening who might not know your background, the background to barbell rehab as well. Yeah. Just want to give a little bit of a background to yourself. For sure. I'd love to. So I'm a high school baseball player. That's
1: where it came from. So um, in high school, I was six foot, six foot, 130 pounds when I was a freshman, tall, lanky pitcher. And that's where my passion was. I was a baseball pitcher. Um, it kind of went with the whole introverted thing where like, <laughs> like, okay, I'm the pitcher of the baseball team. Um, it's not like this gigantic, um, it's still a team sport, but right, but a lot of autonomy within baseball. And uh, I met the, our high school hired an athletic trainer uh the second year my sophomore year and he was very progressive and the first thing he said is we got to get you lifting weights and I was like wait what lifting weights for baseball pitching and he's like yeah you get strong you get more muscle mass uh you can increase force production you can throw harder I was like all right let's give this a shot and I still remember it to this day it was in uh like 2008 and it was the 135 pound rack pull from below my knee it was like one of the first strength training exercises I ever did was a rack pull and I was like okay I like this I can get down with this so what ended up happening is in high school I ended up falling in love with training more than baseball itself to the point like I was in my senior year and I was more concerned about PRing my deadlift than prepping for the next uh baseball outing <laughs> um so uh what ended up happening was um I ended up getting shoulder surgery in uh college I did not pitch into college. Um shoulder surgery, it was an old slap tear from, you know, I was the kid throwing way too many curveballs when I was 12. Um and once I went into college, I went to school for physical therapy because um I really saw how much strength training can benefit somebody from a rehab perspective. And so I knew from high school that okay, I want to, when I become a physical therapist, I want to incorporate strength and conditioning principles into it. I see firsthand how they can benefit from it. And then when I got to PT school, I realized that, hey, like not everybody thinks this way. This is a little bit different, Um, but that's okay. I pushed forward and realized that there was a large community out there of um, like-minded strength-based physiotherapists. So once I got into my first clinical It Cincinnati Sports Medicine. Remember it? I was sitting in the hotel room February 2016. And I was like, you know, I want to just start sharing stuff with the world. I didn't know anything else other than that. And this is like right in the beginning of the I call it the insta physio craze where physiotherapists, strength conditioning coaches, we started getting on Instagram. So I got in February 2016. I was like, let's call it barbell rehab. And I just started sharing random facts, random pictures. Um, And then, so the brand started in 2016 is just a free way to help people. And then I played back and forth with, okay, who do I really want to help? Do I want to help the athletes themselves? Or do I want to help the people that help these athletes? And it initially started out as helping the athletes themselves and started building, started reading research, started incorporating what I knew from physical therapy school, from my own training, and realized that, hey, this is working. I really like this. So did some online training. And then once I worked with enough people, I was like, you know what, I want to keep how do I help more people? Well, let's help the people that help those people. So that's where all of this sort of turned into where I went niche down and went really hard into okay, barbell rehab is now a continuing education company. And that's what we do.
0: Oh, cool. And I, I must admit, for, for anyone who uh, maybe hasn't looked at any of the content that, uh, you know, Michael and uh, the Barbell Rehab put out there, 100% have, have a look. It, it is really useful. And one of the, one of the things um, or one of the first questions that I wanted to ask is, obviously, you've mentioned there about helping the people who help more people. And there's always that sort of, um, not argument, but coaches stepping on the toes of, physios, physios stepping on the toes mm. of, of, of other people and how has that sort of been because there is um you know I'll read up and I'll there's physios that I work with so it's a case of we have um I have an understanding of what they do they have an understanding that we do and it's more of a collaborative approach to ultimately help the client how have you found that in you know the courses that you've run and working with obviously the coaches that are, that are working with the clients and striking striking that balance if you like
1: Yeah. So that's actually one big mission of the barbell rehab method certification is to try and dispel that myth that fitness professionals and rehab professionals need to be fighting and pitched against each other. Because I always say that when physios and strength coaches don't get along and make it a turf war, the only person that loses is the client. We lose this continuation of care. We lose this continuum of care. Because how often, when I was when I was treating every day, we used to always get people that never strength trained before. They had some sort of ache or pain. We introduced them to strength training principles in physical therapy. And they were like, oh, I like this. This is probably something I should do for my entire life. So when we discharge them from physical therapy... As I don't know how insurance is not outside of the States, but in here, it's not that great where people have caps to how many times that we can see them. So basically in the States, we as physical therapists can get these folks good enough within the time frame that we have them, but inevitably they're going to have some higher level goals that they need a little bit of help with after physical therapy. So do I just want to send them home and say, Hey, have at it. Or do I want to send them to a personal trainer or a strength coach that at least has a little bit of knowledge background of rehab that can work with somebody that's 10 to 12 weeks out of a hip replacement that can work with somebody that's three months out of a rotator cuff repair. So that's what we're really trying to do with this seminar is to show that, hey, physical therapists have something to bring to the table. Strength coaches have something to bring to the table. We each have our own specialty, but we can coexist. And even in that coexisting, we can amplify each other and benefit the client as best as possible.
0: Yeah, 100%. It's got to be, it's got, I think it's got to be that approach. I think the, the whole thing of, you know, right, well, the strength coaches are going to keep the clients to themselves because, you know, the person that's going to um, not be helped fully is obviously mm-hmm. the is, is obviously the client, and it was good. One of the things um, for for anyone listening who hasn't um, uh, seen the Kabuki Education Week, um, uh, you did a, a presentation yesterday. Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of the getting back into training when someone's when someone's in pain and you sort of highlighted, you know, where would a fitness professional or a coach go in and then the the, the sort of like rehab. And I thought that was pretty, pretty good because it's a it's a clear line of, right, OK, we can actually work, work together on this rather than, you know, the uh, physios are going to have a lot more knowledge in that area because that's their specialist area. Yeah, so the coaches can learn that. But at the end of the day, they're a strength coach, they're in the gym, you know, and focusing on those exercises compared to the physio. So I 100% agree, you know, it's got to be a a collaborative approach. And I kind of just wanted to touch on that because I think sometimes Mm -hmm. um, people think of the word rehab and think, oh, well, you're only going to be lying down on your back just doing breathing drills or or something like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's tough. And even to this day, I still get a ton of slack where I'll get people that I get nasty messages. They'll be like, Hey, barbell rehab, how dare you teach personal trainers, how to do rehab. And I always tell them like, look, we draw a line and the reason why we draw this line and the reason why we're open about it. And we talk about it is because there is an elephant in the room and the elephant in the room is that how many people do you know, have no past history of pain, no current history of pain, no past orthopedic surgical history and, no mobility deficits, and are reaching all their goals, right? The fact of the matter is people have aches and pains, and we like to normalize this, that it's just part of the human experience. So what we always say, and what you saw in that Kabuki lecture, is what is the fitness professional's role when it comes to working with folks in pain? And it comes down to this. If a client's pain can be modulated, alleviated, whatever word that you want to use, if it can be reduced with a form adjustment or a programming adjustment, that's within your scope as a, as a fitness professional. Okay. Because the fact of the matter is for somebody that has severe hip pain during squats, sometimes all it takes is a stance adjustment to immediately eradicate that. And as much as I love being a physical therapist, it's, we don't wanna unnecessarily put people in the medical model if we don't need to. So if it all it takes is a stance adjustment to alleviate somebody's hips, I want to 1000% empower fitness professionals to do this. Now, if you make these stance adjustments, if you tinker around with the form and you're not getting anywhere, you've had to like drastically reduce load, reduce range of motion, then we refer out, right? So that's how we sort of draw the line there that hey guy's like, fitness professionals, we're not recommending you do manual therapy, we're not recommending you tell people diagnoses. But the fact of the matter is, if you can adjust lifts to make them more comfortable, have at it, we want to empower people because the bigger issue here is that not enough people are exercising. And one of the biggest barriers to that is pain. So if we can empower fitness professionals to make these tiny adjustments, that's only going to serve,
0: it's only going to elevate the the population as a whole yeah definitely and a couple of things a, a word that you kept mentioning there was adjusting you know if it is just a case of taking feet out and i think it's sometimes important to remember i actually had this conversation this week is friday uh, probably this week um with uh, with a couple of clients and the going to the gym for the majority of people it's a hobby It's not the job. It's not. It's something that they enjoy where it's outside of work, where they can blow off a little bit of steam, even, you know, um, powerlifters, weightlifters, crossfitters. It's, again, a hobby until you might get to a certain level. And then, you know, uh, the elite level weightlifters, for example, going to the going to the Olympics. It's probably going to be a little bit more of a job for them, and yeah. they have to take that rehab a little bit, uh, well, a lot more, a lot more seriously than somebody who just wants to generally get stronger and generally be be healthy. And do you think sometimes that um, coaches and, and and physios or maybe even clients sometimes forget that that it is ultimately it doesn't matter we don't have to deadlift with a straight bar you can deadlift with a trap bar you can still get strong from there rather than looking at these um, you know elite level athletes weightlifters powerlifters and it's a case of look what is it that you actually want to get out of the gym
1: yeah and that's tough and i've fallen into that trap even when i started barbell rehab back in the day i was convinced convinced that i was going to make everybody low bar back squat conventional deadlift and bench press, because like if, right, that was the way it was five to 10 years ago. It was, if you don't low bar back squat, conventional deadlift and bench press, you're like less of a human than the rest of us who do those three very specific lifts. But then you start to realize that if you're forcing specific variations on people, all that might do is put up more barriers to exercise. And right? twenty-three. Only 23% of Americans are hitting the recommended physical activity guidelines. And what do you do if a low bar back squat is uncomfortable, but a high bar back squat feels great? Do we really need to force gen pop into a low bar back squat if all we need to do is move that bar a couple inches up somebody's back to make it more comfortable? So, And I even think older physicians, I mean, there's this stigma with weightlifting that weightlifting is or strength training is powerlifting, which this is not to knock powerlifting at all. I love powerlifting, but it's a sport. It's a sport, right? It's a sport where the goal is to lift as much weight possible for one rep one time or three times, depending how many attempts you're doing. So but we don't need to take that and extrapolate it into the general population. Dare I say that if somebody's only goal is to be healthy, And to interact with their environment and to meet the World Health Organization's guidelines for strength training, and they really enjoy going to the gym and doing a machine circuit. I'm cool with that. And I can't believe I'm saying that because five years ago, I'd have been like machines. But guess what, if you are adherent to machines two to three times a week, and you're using principles of progressive overload, you're winning. You're winning. So that's what we're really coming down to here with this, with what we do. Yes, we're barbell rehab. um, And we love like coaching the bench, squat, deadlift, showing people how to make them more comfortable. But our bigger mission here is how do we just get more people loading in
0: strength training? yeah absolutely and a couple of times there well you mentioned you mentioned a couple of examples you know pain as a as a barrier to get involved in uh, in in training you know the, the thinking that you have to if you do strength training and I, I compete in powerlifting I, I compete in powerlifting myself so every time I talk about strength everyone thinks oh do I have to buy a belt do I do I, okay. do I have to enter a competition in 12 weeks time no, not at all. You know, yeah. You can, that'd be great. It'd be awesome. Yeah. I'd love to take you to a competition. However, if you just want to get stronger, if you just want to learn some different exercises, because I think the biggest thing is everyone gets involved in training because they enjoy it. It's fun. You know, like what you mentioned about the rack Oh, this is pretty cool. I want to yeah. do I want to do this a little a little bit more rather than you know, uh, trying to think that it's serious all the time and it has to be, no, you need perfect technique and you need to do this and that. You can maybe get to that point, the more serious you take it if you start, like what you had mentioned, if it's a sport, there's certain times when you're going to have to take it a little bit seriously. But yeah. in terms of those barriers... Do you think t- sometimes that comes from the clients looking at all the information and you can type in on Instagram powerlifter <laughs> or strength coach and there'll be loads of, loads of things that have come up and loads of information or do you think sometimes the barriers are from the maybe the information and content that is put out by coaches and the fitness industry that kind of prevent people getting involved in training? Does that kind of make sense?
1: Yeah, and I think I think it's both ways. I think you're seeing that I think you're seeing a lot of well-intentioned coaches and physical therapists trying to move the needle in the right direction, but they don't quite understand the potential harm of some of the language that they might be using. For like example, like if we are overly focused on making beginners have perfect form in the beginning, that 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 in and of itself could add another barrier to exercise because Um, think about like when you're a kid and let's say that you wanted to go play soccer or baseball and at least my parents just said, go out and kick the ball around. Like they didn't tell me you need to kick it this certain way and make it look perfect before we put you into a soccer team. They said, no, you're playing peewee soccer, (laughs) go in and run around and you'll learn as you go. And that's how all sports are. And I don't know where in lifting, that it became, for some, that said, hey, we need to make these things look perfect before we move forward. So I think there's a lot of well-intentioned, large, I mean, we're not going to name any names, but we know these people. There's a lot of large brands and people out there that mean right, I don't think it's malicious, at least I hope, I hope it's not malicious, where they're really trying to help people, but they don't understand what can happen by saying things like, hey, this, these, your back needs to be absolutely perfect if you're gonna pull something off the floor. That's just not gonna be achievable for some people, and that's okay. We let skill acquisition and load and progressive overload happen simultaneously. We don't force somebody to have a perfect bodyweight squat. Here's the tangent that you mentioned that we might go on, right? <laughs> We're already starting to go down it. We don't make somebody say, Hey, your body weight squat needs to look absolutely perfect before we start loading it and we don't need somebody to absolutely own a dowel hip hinge if they can comfortably get into a trap bar deadlift on day one right we don't we don't need to make people own these regressions if they can already do the loaded lift itself and some people are going to disagree with me on that and that's okay that's healthy
0: yeah i think that comes down to, to that was a good a good point actually because it comes back to um, the assessment. So every person that, that comes into uh, the, the gym that I'm head coach at gets a movement assessment mm-hmm. and we do a form of the FMS. Now, mm-hmm. I say a form of the FMS because, you know, we have um, a lot of our clients are beginners, uh, beginners, interme- intermediates wanting to get involved in, in uh, strength training. And they're all uh, general population clients. We have a few specialists, but, you know, a lot, a lot of people are just general population clients. And one of the main things, and I was kind of thinking about this when you mentioned about changing foot stance, the assessments are standardised. So obviously you can see, OK, so this is going to highlight this and this and this. And sometimes I think when coaches are assessing, it can be that case of the client can maybe misunderstand or um, mm. think as though that's the technique that they need to use for example, the overhead squat in the, the FMS, toes pointing forward, feet shoulder width apart. And sometimes that actual technique is in textbooks, you know, knees not going past the toes, which yeah. I actually didn't think was a thing anymore. And last week someone mentioned it to me and I thought that's been a long time since I've uh, I've, I've, I've heard anything from there. And do you think yeah. from the assessment side of things, that's where maybe it needs to alter and change because we've adjusted the FMS to fit the population that we're with. And a little bit like what you mentioned, sometimes having that dowel down the middle of the, of the back to do a hip hinge can kind of be off putting for people. Whereas you stand them in a trap bar, it's a little bit higher. They don't have to go all the way down to the floor and they can feel a little bit more comfortable. Do you think that assessment has a role into a role to play in the barriers towards maybe barbell and strength training?
1: Yeah, that's a great point that we can talk about. Um, Like, I'm a big believer of assessments on day one, but it's what it's the conclusions we draw from those assessments that can make or break it. So we don't have to throw the FMS. We don't have to throw it out of the water. Sure. It's a good way to look at how people move. The problem I have is when we tell them if they fail it, that they're wrong or they're inherently bad. It might just be the way. It's just might be the way they move. So I still do an assessment on day one. And I recommend it just to get an idea of how this person moves. But I'm not saying anything nocebic. I'm not sitting there, like staring at them like they're (laughs) doing a test, making them feel anxious. I make it a very lighthearted experience. And just a very like, hey, today's day one. Um, I've never worked with you before, so I'd love to see how you move. Um, This isn't something you need to be worried about. This isn't a test that I'm, like, I'm straight up telling them, like, this is not a test that we're looking to see if you're passing or failing. I just, I don't know you. I want to see how you move. So that's all, because on day one, one of my favorite ways to teach the squat is I want to see. Hey, can you show me? Can you squat down and stand up? Just giving these very vague terms because I want to see to them what they think a squat is. So I think the assessment still plays a key role to give you an idea of how this person moves. But we don't want to patholize, pathologize that, and say that okay, you're wrong, you failed. Now let's correct that, and I'm gonna be your fixer, and I'm gonna fix you, and uh, that stuff just doesn't fly anymore. I mean, we. It used to, but it's just, we have enough evidence now for movement variability that know that we know that, Hey, everybody moves a little bit differently. And if people get hurt moving, um, I'm, I used to be really zoned in on the form and used to solely blame it on form. This is a whole nother rabbit hole, right? Um, but now I'm like, okay, what else is going on in this person's life? Did we, did we spike the load frequency volume too much? Are they super stressed out at home? Is there something else going on that? might have sensitized them or predisposed them to increase risk of injury uh, but back to your whole assessment thing I think it holds a key role it's just we want to be careful of the conclusions we draw from it
0: yeah uh, absolutely because how I always word it is it's just um signposts it's just little things I'm looking for to point me in the right direction and when we get actually into the sessions it is a case of from the assessment that you know I do or the other coaches that I work with that do The person training in front of me, because it happened, um, she used to play basketball and she's she's quite tall. And she always, uh, in her assessment, it was highlighted that she didn't really feel comfortable with deadlifts. So, okay, what variation can we use? Anyway, raising the bar slightly higher off the floor because she's pretty tall. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, okay, this feels comfortable. And that was one of the things from what we've spoken about here from the from the lecture that you did yesterday is that thing of if you feel more comfortable doing an exercise, you're more likely to um, do it more and, and, and yeah. enjoy it. You're more likely to put a bit more weight on the bar, so you're actually getting a, a training stimulus and actually yeah. see, you know, that you you're progressing you're progressing with it rather than. Which goes on to sort of the, the next question that I was going to ask in terms of, you know, having had pain in the past or people who have had uh, or feel pain or have, had, have been feeling pain for quite a long time. When it comes to the assessment saying, oh, well, well, I'm not going to do that because I already know I'm going to have pain. What sort of the process or uh, what's your best practice in terms of? okay, so you've had pain, how can we start making you feel more comfortable and start playing around with variations for that person?
1: Gotcha. So that's a case-by-case that's a case decision, and it's going to be based on the goals of that client. And the answer is going to be somewhere in the middle. So let's use the, I'm going to give you two examples. Let's use the example of somebody that has a training history that has repeatedly tweaked, repeatedly tweaked their back on conventional deadlift. And now has this, for lack of a better term, a neurotag associated with the conventional deadlift, meaning that anytime they start to get heavy on a conventional deadlift, their mind starts talking to them and says, hey, am I going to tweak? This has happened so many times. Um, is this going to happen again? So right then and there, we need to weigh the pros and cons of do we take the time to try and desensitize that specific variation or do we just say, hey this person really enjoys sumo deadlift, and they don't have to think about it whatsoever. Um, If that's the case, we have to weigh the pros and cons. For me, I'm that person where I've tweaked my back so many times on conventional. I used to think it was a form issue. We're talking to my late teens. I used to think it was a form issue, but now I know that uh, it was a programming issue and a inability to optimally cope with life stressors issues that back in my late teens, that was always keeping me sensitized and tweaking my low back. But to this day, if I start to load up conventional too heavy, I start to get those memories. So for me, I just, I pull sumo just because um, it helps me meet my goals, my training goals. So what I'm trying to say is if somebody has tweaked something or hurt themselves so many times on a specific variation, it may not behoove us to take all of the time to try and try and desensitize that specific variation if all it takes is putting them in another one as long as they're happy with that and as long as it helps them reach their training goals. Um, but that doesn't fly all of the time because let's say you're a powerlifter and let's say you tweaked your shoulder bench pressing. It's not just going to cut it to say, hey, well, just Swiss bar bench press for the rest of your life. It's not specific to their sport. You can't Swiss bar bench press at a powerlifting competition. So in they, those cases, we do really need to dig deeper and desensitize that specific variation. So hopefully I'm answering your question with, do we... Uh, what?" what do how do we decide whether we work at it to desensitize a specific variation or when do we pivot and permanently choose another one? It's going to be goal specific.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I I think that's got to come back to the, uh, the conversations with the, with the client. Cause sometimes, you know, uh, with uh, the powerlifter, for example, you know, no, I need to, I need to work through this. It'll be fine. You know, work through the show Then actually ends up being, being something worse. And a couple of times there, you mentioned about the programming side of things and I've had clients that have come and worked with other coaches, um, you know, who have, who have had an injury and looking for something a little bit different. And it's, you know, there's, there's loads of information on there on programming, periodization and um, how to get people stronger, fitter, faster, all those sort of things. From the programming point of view, flipping it to the side of how to help coaches, Mm-hmm. where do you think the programming potentially goes wrong and people start getting injured, for example, with the deadlifts? Because it's a case of, you know, do you deadlift once or twice a week? Do you deadlift yeah. for 10-plus reps? Do you bounce off the floor? And that's just on the on the deadlift side of things. How wh- Where do you think something is maybe going wrong with either new coaches coming in um, to, to the gym and, and, and wanting to um, put their mark on their programming or do something different, um, or maybe just um, uh, just, just making that slight tweak that, you know, that it was an oversight or something like that.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of variables that go into this. So I think I'd like to go down the route of a couple things here. One is there's a lot of right ways to do deadlift programming, right? Some people succeed at a frequency of once a week. Some people, there's some high level people that deadlift two to three times a week. Others will say, No deadlift creates a lot of central nervous system fatigue, right? Whatever you want to extrapolate that means. And you can only deadlift once every 14 days. And guess what? It works for all of those people. So I think that you need to experiment with different deadlift frequencies to see what does work best for that person in front of you, but some common low-hanging fruit themes that we do want to see from client to client are, I'm going to go down two routes here. One, making sure that their specific warm-up is optimized. Um, If somebody is consistently hurting themselves on the deadlift and their warm-up looks like barbell RDL for 10, and then 225 for 5 and then throw 4 405 on the bar. We're looking at we're looking at an issue there because you didn't take the time to slowly get your body prepared for the load that you're going to lift for that day. So I always say regardless of what warm-up technique that you like to use, non-negotiable, everybody should be doing a specific warm-up, meaning whatever that first lift is going to be, we do multiple low rep warm-up sets of slowly progressing intensity to it. That's outside of anything else that the person wants to do, which may or may not benefit. But if somebody is not doing five to eight sets of deadlifts, low rep prior to their first 405 working set, that's the low hanging fruit that I'm going to adjust first, that we need to take that time to do that. So that's step one. And then So this is all outside of the variation that we might see in frequency. Step two is making sure that the intensity is appropriate for that client. And we always say we are biased towards using the RPE scale rate of perceived exertion. So we always like to say that I like to see the average RPE of the working sets of the basic barbell lifts to be in that seven to 8.5 range. And this is a misconception because take it back to the seventies, the Arnold era, where we were told that all of the muscle growth happens in those last two to three forced reps when you're ready to pass out, right? Certainly worked for them. And I'm not here to knock them because they are far stronger. The bodybuilders back in the seventies far stronger than I am, but we don't need to necessarily take those concepts and transition them to the general population. You are going to see increased strength benefits and hypertrophy benefits working heavy-ish but not necessarily to failure every time. So if somebody is consistently hurting themselves lifting and we look at the programming and we're seeing, oh, a ton of RPE nines and tens, this is not a form issue. This is a dosage issue. So those are the two things that I always look for is what is the average RPE of the working sets and and
0: are they optimizing the specific warm-up? Uh, it goes back to... The- you know, it's a case of um, when you have uh, maybe a set of five reps. That doesn't mean to say it's a five rep max, and it's yeah. absolutely busting a gut, busting a gut to do that. Because you know, especially um, say someone started a, a month worth of training, right? It's a it's a four week program that we're starting off. We want to get stronger because if we start at maximum, we've got no ceiling there. We've got we've got nothing nothing to, nothing to progress through. Um, yeah, yeah. And you know, I know sometimes there's that. Because I use RP in my training and sometimes I, I get it wrong and then I look back at the training footage and think, oh, actually, that was a little bit lower or higher than mm-hmm. than, than, than what it was. And I know people can say, oh, it's subjective, it's not it's not right. However, it's, I'm a big believer in it. it's the person beneath the bar, it's how they feel. And, you know, if they're feeling like what you mentioned, and their average is always up at a nine, they're probably going to be feeling tired into the next session, not so much in that one session, into the next session for the rest of the week, into the next week. And then all of a sudden, because with injuries... You know, there's the injuries that can happen straight away, like in a a rugby tackle, you know, or a football tackle, and it actually happens, or it's that build-up of time. And I think sometimes, you know, um, I once put a a, a poll out, or there was a a study that came out about the actual injury risk um, in uh, powerlifting, and for powerlifting, it's probably one of the only sports, apart from, you know, maybe weightlifting, that the training is the same as the competition whereas yeah. rugby football basketball baseball there's other things that you could other things that you can do and it's always going to be a build up of time so you know like what you mentioned there about the uh, the average rpe if that builds up over time everything's got a breaking point it might be a case of oh no you've you've just pushed it a little bit a, a little bit too far there yeah. and do you think you know that's the case of in terms of the mentality around um, and it probably goes back to what we were talking about in terms of barriers—the mentality around strength training that it's a come on, we've got to do it a little bit like um, uh, West Side versus the World, really cool yeah. documentary to watch, but that yeah. isn't necessarily a true representation of not every strength, not every strength coach is going to be like that, not every gym is going to be like that. Yeah. What um, What 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 are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I first of all um,
1: on the RPE thing, one thing I wanted to note is that. I don't want people to misconstrue what I'm saying. And if somebody happens to accidentally hit an RPE 9 or 10, <laughs> we don't want to nocebo them and say, oh, my gosh, why did you do that? So, like, in general, we want to keep that average there, but we, you're going to undershoot sometimes, you're going to overshoot sometimes, and that's okay. We're just looking for the average Um, based on, and now talking about what you said, there's nothing wrong with that mentality, that West side versus the world mentality, but that is sports specific to their sport. Um, And we don't need to extrapolate that to the gen pop, which I think happened a lot, right? We see these people, we see, oh man, that's what strength training is. And it's a small sub, it's a small section of it for elite lifters that tend to get into that mentality which is cool which works for them but we need to help dispel this myth that that's what strength training is it's just a subsect. it's just a subchapter of it um and that goes like to i used to be the guy i used to be the guy that made fun of planet fitness right i used to 5 10 years ago be like ha planet fitness you go and do machines to get free pizza on monday right <laughs> but guess what I like if somebody if that's what gets somebody adherent to strength training, I'm fine with that. Like, that's awesome. It's going to Planet Fitness and doing a machine circuit two to three times a week. Well, although it doesn't fit my bias, um, it it gets the job done. Is it optimal? Maybe not. But is it good enough to keep people moving loading, progressively loading, then yes, then I'm okay with that. So we need to, I think we need to attack this from both ends, letting people like letting people know that, hey, powerlifting is not necessarily the goal that we need to adapt for everybody. And we also need to stop this whole like machine based uh, planet fitness shaming idea, because the fact of the matter is there's just going to be some people that don't want to lift with free weights. Um, And they prefer that Planet Fitness style. And if that's what helps reach their goals, then I'm cool with that.
0: Yeah, I I think it's got to be of, um, when you mentioned there, if they're coming in and uh, just doing a, a machine circuit, there needs to be an entry point And the the fact of the matter is is that using machines, there's usually a little description on what it says, what muscle it works and Mm -hmm. and how to use the machine. It's a good entry point for for a lot of people when all the other things that we've we've spoken about in terms of the barriers to barbell training. And then it's probably a case of whether it's Planet Fitness, where it's an independent gym, whatever it may be, is then going to that person and be like, right, that's a really good starting point. At least Mm -hmm. we're moving. At least we're in the gym. How do we develop from there? How do we progress from there so we have something that's a little bit more beneficial? And, you know, similar to, like, the programming side of things, it's not as though, you know, I would hate to think that there's coaches out there thinking, I know, I'll get them to do deadlift six times a week and I want to get, like, you know, I generally think that sometimes it is just that case of, is everyone going to be on the same page in terms of, you know, what's going to be best practice? And And then building from there. That kind yeah. of goes onto a a, a sideway track of one thing that you that, that you touched on a little bit earlier in terms of you know uh, always having an answer or always thinking about right I need to fix this I need to do this with the uh, the person that's coming in and doing the circuit no you're wrong we need to find the answer of why you feel comfortable doing a leg press and why you can't do a a, a back squat or anything like that yeah. Do you think that is just the case of coaches wanting to, you know, express their knowledge and always find as though they've got something to say rather than being, okay, let's see how we go. Let's, let's look what route this, our client wants to go down and see what direction they take it rather than the coach always saying, Nope, you need to do this.
1: Yeah. I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head there and, The fact of the matter is it really comes down to which setting are you coaching in? If you are a coach at a powerlifting gym, you would expect that the clients that sign up with you are going to want to do powerlifting style training. So it kind of, it's kind of like a, it filters, the clients usually filter themselves out based on the setting you're already coaching in. But if you're coaching in more of a big gym where there is more variety, then you tend to see the coach want to impart their bias on the client, right? Because <laughs> let's say you're at more of like a, a bigger gym that has all kinds of different ways that people strength train. Let's say there's a CrossFit section of it, CrossFit style section of it. There's your little powerlifting corner, and then there's your machines, right? Like this is this is how a lot of the gyms are here, where it's just like a little bit of everything. So the personal trainers that work there where you can offer all of these different styles of training i think what you're talking about does happen pretty frequently with oh this is the powerlifting coach or this is the this coach likes to do all kind of glute work with everybody just because that's what their preference is so i think it really comes down to the assessment if we tie it back there part of a good assessment is not just the physical aspect is what are the client's goals? No, we don't want to take this too far and just assume that we stand there and let the client tell us what they want to do because maybe they just don't know what they don't know, right? Maybe this doesn't remove the benefit of being a coach in educating the person on uh, like strength training options, but we should be taking into consideration their preferences within reason, right? Can we, like my goal as a strength coach is, can we progressively load muscles over long ranges of motion and in order to facilitate an adaptation? That's my goal. And, but there's, and there's many different ways to reach that goal. We just want to make sure that the way that we're going to use, um, does align with the goals of the client. Uh, and we just don't let them do whatever they want willy nilly. Right. So there has to be, a, there has to be a
0: line here for sure. Yeah. It's, it's kind of when you have a look at that and when you mention the assessment, it's kind of, you're taking notes and listening to what they're saying, but mm-hmm. on your uh, coach's hat, you're looking at, right, what do I need to tick off to make sure that, you know, this person isn't going to get injured and he's going to get stronger and, 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 and progress from there because it is that, um, I can't remember the saying, you know, what, give them, give them what they want, but also what they, what they need. There's, there's a saying yep. in there, there's a saying in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just striking that it's just striking that balance a little bit. And it kind of goes full circle to what we were talking about at the start, which was the barriers. So from that entry point, when they're first getting in, the first thing is get them into the gym, get clients into the gym, and then try and break down those barriers because it's a little bit like, yeah, um, like at a disco when there's girls on one side and and and, and, and lads <laughs> on the other, you go into a gym and there's the powerlifters in one corner with chalk and slapping each other on the back, CrossFit doing rope climbs and all and everything. Whereas yeah. actually, you know, it's that thing of, well, what do you want to do? Well, I kind of want to get stronger. I don't want my back to hurt. I want to, I want to feel, you know, happy and confident coming into the gym. Right. Okay. What's the, what's our starting point? What can we do? And then build, and, and, and then build it up from there. Um. So quite a lot of topics and tangents I am um, uh, thrown in uh, thrown in there. The last question that I, that I like to ask, from everything that we've chatted about there, um, is what would be your take-home points or words of wisdom, either from clients listening who are wanting to get involved in strength training as it's the start of a new year. Um, Or from a coach's point of view, who you know are working with people who um, are trying to find their feet in how to best, you know, get them out of pain or find the right uh, right path for them.
1: Yeah, my piece of advice would be the best way is just to get started, and you don't even need to know. You don't even need to know a lot. It doesn't need to look perfect because you can figure that out along the way. Um, So there should be no barrier to getting somebody into the gym. Uh, As a coach, you should be welcoming, you should be allowing, you shouldn't be wagging fingers, uh, (laughs) saying that, hey, like, uh, this, this looks crappy, don't do it this way. And basically, when it comes down to the barriers of barbell training, we need to meet people where they're at. Um, and, and it's all going to be depend on the client. So if somebody comes in, they're really fear avoidant of the barbell, like they are that type of person that might be, they might think that strength training is big powerlifting, and they're a little bit afraid of that, then we we start them, we don't even use the barbell in that situation. We start them on kettlebells, we start them on dumbbells. And then as they start to see, and you can start to see that Switch go, where they're starting to feel more comfortable. Maybe then we progress them to the barbell. And on the flip side, if somebody is able to do a barbell lift on day one and it feels fine, then we don't need to work with all kind of patterning and say, "Whoa, nope, you're not allowed to do that because we need <laughs> to goblet squat for six months before we put you under a barbell." So it,
0: it really comes down to just meeting people where they're at. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a a good um, a piece of wisdom to to finish off because. When you mention there about oh we've got a goblet squat for for, for six months in my head out you know and um, we have certain uh, strength standards in in the gym that's not to say that you have to stay on this exercise the phrase is you know um, the heaviest dumbbell or kettlebell that we've got in the gym can you deadlift that you know and feel yeah. confident with it and then it's a case yeah. of that might be after a week two weeks you know some people it's taken them a couple of months just because like what you touched on there, people have preconceived ideas of, well, I don't want to go too heavy because if I lift too heavy, I'm going to hurt, I'm gonna hurt my back. Whereas, you know, and then on the flip side of that, the argument is, well, how are you supposed to get stronger if you never try and lift, you know, a, li- a little bit more weight? And then it's a case of, you show me. You show me that you can do it. And if it's drastically wrong and your sp- spine's hanging out your back, right, okay, maybe let's not do that. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's that <laughs> case of just having that sort of, um uh, those guidelines to be like this is what i want to tick off from a coach's list everything else apart from that the pro the um the rate of progress is dictated by the by the client so yeah i thought that was a a, a good um uh, piece of uh, wisdom to finish off from there so thanks Thank you. a lot for taking the time to jump on really enjoyed uh, chatting with you, chatting with you there. I'm, there was quite a lot of other rabbit holes and tangents that oh, we've yeah. already, uh, got gone down from there. So um, yeah, 100. Um, I'll be, I'll be hoping for another episode in the in the not too distant future to touch on some of those. Um, but for uh, for everyone listening who might have any um, questions of what we've chatted about today, uh, want to see the content that you put out there or seminars or or, or, or or anything like that, where can people find you or reach out to you?
1: Yeah. The two biggest, the two easiest ways are just to head right to the website, barbellrehab.com or the most active social media that I'm on is Instagram and I'll make it easy for you. It's barbellrehab Instagram
0: (laughs) as well. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, for everyone listening, if you haven't checked out Barbell Rehab, if you haven't checked out the work that Michael does, 100% do that. I know I follow quite a, a lot of content that he does. Um, the lecture that he did at Kabuki Education Week—well, uh, probably when this is posted, that week will be over. But 100%, look at look at that information that he's putting out there because you know it is that bar- it is that uh, breaking down that barrier between you know the rehab world and the strength coach world. And like what we said right at the start, it's got to be a collaboration collaboration um to benefit the client um rather than just you know trying to go it alone and, and just guessing um, so thanks a lot for taking the time to chat with me thanks a lot to everyone listening and i will see you all next week all right, thanks for
1: having me on Stephen.